Good morning. Uh, If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 is where we are as we journey our way through this book. Somebody once told me that the job of a preacher is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. I'm not sure who coined that expression, but it wouldn't surprise me to learn that they got the idea from the book of Hebrews, because those two things definitely fit this book. Uh, On the one hand, this book has some incredibly comforting things to say to those who are believers in Jesus. And I'll just insert here, if you're not yet there, uh, I'm really glad you're here and you're checking it out. And my prayer for you would be that soon you would uh, join the ranks of those who are believers in Jesus. But incredibly comforting words. Um, you know, if, if you're feeling afflicted, just feeling maybe defeated in your own life, maybe in your own personal battle with sin. It is incredibly comforting to read in the first part of chapter 10, for example, that when Jesus died on the cross, that was the final, once-for-all sacrifice for all sin that brings absolute, total, complete forgiveness to anyone who trusts in Him. Uh, Verse 14 of chapter 10. For by one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And that's just so reassuring to know that if you belong to Jesus, there is absolutely nothing you need to do, nothing you have to do, in fact, nothing you can do to make yourself more acceptable to God than Jesus has already made you. You might think, yeah, but I'm a mess. Ah, There's still so much about me that needs to change. Yeah, I know, me too. Um, But here's the thing. Once we're united to Christ by faith, God accepts us completely and He begins His work of changing us, but He doesn't change us in order to become acceptable to Him. He changes us because we have been accepted by Him. Jesus has made us acceptable. So that's that's so comforting to know. But then there's that other thing this book does, which is to afflict the comfortable. There are some serious warning passages in Hebrews uh, that are clearly intended to disturb us, to provoke us, to make sure that our faith in Jesus is genuine. And that is not because the free gift of salvation that we receive in Christ, that that somehow we can lose that. It's because not everybody who claims to believe in Jesus really does. So today we come to a very uncomfortable warning in the last part of chapter 10. And and just that fact is very striking, that the very same chapter which contains 
uh, such comforting words that encourage us. I mean, we, we just dealt with the previous passage encouraging us to draw near, come near to God, come into his presence with confidence, not reluctantly, not hanging back, but coming right into his presence confidently because of what Jesus has done to take away our sin, to make us acceptable to God. I mean, it's so striking that the same chapter with those strong reassurances also have such dire warnings. And that might seem really strange to us, that we'd have both comforting reassurance and disturbing warnings in the same place. But it's all for the same purpose, to motivate us to know, to believe, to regard Jesus as the most important, the, the, the most superior person, the Son of God, and to give him our closest attention, our deepest affection, and our strongest loyalty. So we're going to read it now. And I'm just going to, right before we read it, let me pray and ask the Spirit of God to both comfort us and disturb us in any ways that we need. Let me pray. Father, I do pray that, but that by your Spirit right now, you would cause us to hear your word as you meant us, as you mean us to hear it. And that we would find comfort where we need it, and we would find challenge and warning where we need it. And we pray that you would do that for the glory of Jesus and for our good in his name. Amen. So chapter 10, I'm going to begin reading at verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And remember, this is the same author who just told us, Draw near to God with confidence, enter into his embrace. This is a different encounter with God falling into his hands, hands of judgment. So it's a very serious warning. And uh, we'd, we'd probably just like to, you know, hurry past it. But we shouldn't do that. We should not assume that these words do not apply to us. These words were first spoken, first written to people who professed belief in Jesus, just as pretty much most of us do. So let's, let's, let's ask and let's discern what we need to take to heart here. 
Let's think about those to whom this was first written. Okay. They were Jewish people, people who had grown up with the scriptures, who had known about the promises God had made. And these are people who then had heard the good news about Jesus. They had responded positively. Unlike their leaders, most of their leaders and most of their fellow countrymen, but now their loyalty to Jesus is being challenged in very serious ways. Uh, the people around them were becoming more and more antagonistic. Uh, and they were feeling the pressure to stop talking about Jesus. To stop referring to him as the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who fulfills all God's promises through his death and resurrection, to stop saying he's going to come back and he's going to judge the living and the dead and what you do with him is the most important decision you'll ever make. In other words, just stop making a big deal about Jesus. Now, maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you have friends or coworkers or members of your own family who would prefer that you would just shut up about Jesus. Quit causing conflict. Stop saying that something's right or wrong just because Jesus says so, or because the Bible says so. I mean, the Bible's a 2,000-year-old book, for crying out loud. I mean, the pressure to minimize Jesus can be intense. And it's likely to get worse. But this letter was written to counteract that pressure to minimize Jesus. And it does it in two ways. It does it with comforting promises. And it does it with scary warnings. And apparently, we need both. We need both. We need to know... On the one hand, how amazing the reward will be for those who remain loyal to Jesus. And on the other hand, we need to know how terrible the consequences will be for anyone who gives up and walks away. And it's that second thing that we're seeing here. These words show us just how high the stakes are when the pressure's on. So when people insist that we knock it off with the Jesus stuff, or else, well, what are we going to do? Will we keep on believing his promises? Will we keep obeying his instructions because we want to trust and honor him in everything we do, everything we say? Or are we going to say, ah, you know, never mind. You guys are right. Following Jesus causes trouble. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Sorry to have bothered you. I'll shut up. Uh, I won't live that way anymore. Well, according to this, the consequences of doing that are grim, to say the least. And I think that's the first thing we need to grasp here, that this is not a trivial issue. 
This is not a trivial issue. Whether or not those who profess to have faith in Jesus continue to remain loyal to him even when it's hard, what's at stake in that decision, this, what's at stake is huge. Huge. And that's so countercultural, isn't it? It's just so out of sync with the world we live in. To our world, what you believe about Jesus is utterly trivial. It's just an issue of personal preference. And to believe in Jesus as if it actually matters, that's seen as very strange and even more and more is considered downright dangerous. So if somebody who used to profess faith in Jesus now no longer does, they decide to believe in something else, believe differently and go in a very different direction, hey, no big deal. In fact, a lot of people will applaud. Way to be true to yourself. But what if being true to yourself is not the truth? What if the way to experience true life and true joy and true fulfillment, to experience life as God intends it for you, what if that comes through saying no to yourself so you can say yes to Jesus? Because that's exactly what he said. Matthew 16, 24 Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, say no to themselves, and take up their cross. Okay, that's an instrument of death, the cross. So Jesus is saying, saying no to yourself, that feels like dying. Take up their cross and follow me, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. So this paradox, Jesus is saying that saying no to yourself in order to say yes to him, even if it costs you everything, that is the way to life. That is the way to what you ultimately really want. And that's very different from what the world would say, right? To the world, what you do with Jesus is trivial. It's just a matter of personal preference. And you know, you might, you might think that yourself today. You will not always think that. According to this, what you do with Jesus really matters because he really matters. So let's make sure we're understanding this accurately. What exactly are we being warned about? What is this sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth? Why are the consequences of that so dire? After all, we've been told repeatedly in this book, just mentioned a minute ago, That Jesus forgives all the sins of those who trust him. So we looked at verse 14, look at verse 10 of Hebrews 10. We 
we believers in Jesus have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So if Jesus forgives all the sins of everybody who trusts him, why doesn't he forgive this sin? So we've got to pay close attention here. We've got to look at the context to understand what this sin is. Okay, so some things to see. First of all, the author has just told us in the previous verses to draw near with confidence to God, to come close to God with confidence because of the finished sacrifice of Jesus. So whatever this deliberate sinning is, it's the opposite of that. It's not drawing near to God. It's going the other way. Second, this sin is described as happening after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Well, that's the gospel. That's the good news about Jesus. So, the people who are being warned about this sin are people who know who Jesus claimed to be. They know what he did. To make us right with God. Third, verse 27 describes those who commit this sin as adversaries or enemies. And that's a very strong word. That means being hostile, antagonistic. So these are not people who are neutral or undecided or, you know, I have a few questions maybe some doubts. No, these are those who have come down in opposition to Jesus and his message. Fourth, verse 28 compares them to people who set aside, it says, the law of Moses. That is not a simple act of disobedience like most sin is. That is rebellion. That is rejecting decisively God's word, spurning his message, his messenger, and living, choosing to live in intentional defiance of that word. And then we come to verse 29 and these awful words, trampling underfoot the Son of God, profaning the blood of the covenant, outraging the spirit of grace. Now, I'll explain those phrases in a minute. But when you take this all together, it's clearly talking about something far more serious than simply choosing to do something you know is wrong. Because see, you, you could read this and say, my goodness, go on sinning deliberately? Well, when I did that thing, I knew it was wrong, and I deliberately chose to do it. And so, is this talking about me? Well, yes, that's a sin. That is sin, and all sin is bad. But that's not this sin. Okay? Most sin involves making a choice. I mean, just think about it. When's the last time you sinned only because somebody held a gun to your head 
and made you do it even though you didn't want to. Right, never. <laughs> so this isn't talking about someone who genuinely trusts Jesus but, but somehow commits a sin that's too big for him to forgive. That's not what this is. This sin, this is a deliberate walking away from Jesus. This is turning your back on God's Son and going the other way. This is somebody not who trusts Jesus and commits a sin too big. This is somebody saying, no, nah, I, I don't trust him anymore. Oh, I, I said I used to, but I don't now. I'm refusing to trust him. They might say, not say it that way, but that's what we're talking about. And see, that's why it says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. Because if you reject God's one and only solution to our sin problem, namely Jesus dying in your place as your perfect substitute for sin, there is no other solution. If you've got poison in your bloodstream and there's one antidote and you say, no, you're dead. And clearly, we need to feel how suicidal that would be. That's why these words are here. That's why these words are so scary. These words are meant to scare the literal hell out of us. Not just because God's judgment is so terrifying, that's, that's bad, but even more, the idea that anybody could knowingly treat Jesus, the Son of God, with such contempt is appalling. And that's the point of these stinging words in verse 29. They are meant to help us feel how utterly outrageous it would be for somebody to knowingly do this. I mean, this is what it means, he's saying. This is what the author is saying. This is what it means for someone who knows better to reject Jesus. It means to trample underfoot the Son of God. You know that, just the image of trampling someone under your feet, I mean, that's just awful. But what it symbolizes is even worse. Because to trample something under your feet is to regard it as completely worthless, like a piece of garbage thrown out into the street. You just walk right over it. But this isn't something, this is someone. This is a person, and what a person. This is God's dearly loved son. And go back to chapter 1 and how he was described there. Verse 2, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance, 
the radiance of God's glory, all the goodness and beauty and majesty of God. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of His being. Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. In Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. See, that's why it just will not work. It will not work for somebody to say, yeah, I believe in God. I believe in God. I just don't believe in Jesus. That won't work. That won't work. That's believing in a God who doesn't exist. That's a God of human imagination. That's not the real God. Jesus is the invisible God made visible. You see Him, you've seen the Father, He said. So to treat Him as irrelevant or unimportant is to regard the Son of God as garbage. That's what it's saying. It's unspeakable. Then it goes on. To knowingly reject Jesus is also to profane the blood of the covenant. More literally, that means to regard the blood of the covenant as common. In other words, as not holy, as not unique. And what does that mean? What is the blood of the covenant? Well, we've talked about it before, but it's not a reference to the red fluid. Okay, it is referring to the death Jesus died as the ultimate sacrifice for sin to inaugurate this new covenant. The death penalty for our sins placed on him, his righteousness eternal life placed on us. The substitution, that's what it's talking about. So This is what makes us holy in God's eyes. God's not playing a game here. When it says He sanctifies us, it means He makes us holy by putting the holiness of Christ on us. So, to regard that, to regard Jesus' death, His substitutionary death, as common, what that means is treating it as if it's nothing special. It's saying that Jesus' death was no different from anybody else's. It's meaningless, useless. It accomplished nothing. Can you feel the seriousness of that? One more. Knowingly rejecting Jesus involves outraging or insulting the spirit of grace. Now, just notice that God's Spirit is not a thing, because you can't insult a thing. To reject, to reject Christ as worthless, to regard His death as meaningless, that is an outrageous insult to the person of God's Spirit. Now, Why? Why is that an insult to him? Here's what I think it means. Everything Jesus did, we're told, 
everything he did, he did in the power of God's Spirit. He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And all that he did was in the power of the Spirit. And everything the Spirit empowered Jesus to do was gracious. Everything he did. It was good. It was kind. It was merciful. And grace means it was completely undeserved. Doing good to the undeserving. Everything he did was empowered by the Spirit of grace. I've been reading through the Gospel of Matthew recently, and it it records example after example of Jesus doing these good, wonderful things to absolutely desperate people. So social outcasts or people oppressed by evil spirits people sick with incurable diseases. It says Jesus had compassion on them. And he healed them and he restored them and he transformed them. And at one point, there's an account of him healing a man who cannot hear and cannot speak. Just imagine how desperate you might feel if that were you. And he heals this guy and he, can, he begins speaking and he can hear. And it says that the crowd sees this and they marvel. That is, they're just amazed. And they say, never, ever was anything like this ever seen in Israel. In other words, this is just completely unprecedented. This is an unmistakable display of God's power and His kindness and His mercy. And some people, it says, looked at that obvious work of God's Spirit and said, that's Satan's doing. That's the work of a demon. And Jesus said, that is an unforgivable blasphemy. Why is it unforgivable? Because it was inexcusable. There was no way you could look at what Jesus was doing and not see the Spirit of God at work. The gracious Spirit of God. If you keep rejecting the gracious work of God's Spirit, then at some point you can't believe in Jesus. And you can't experience His forgiveness. And that's what this passage is warning us about to knowingly turn our backs on the Son of God, to regard His death as meaningless, to spurn the gracious invitation of God's Spirit. This is saying, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't take that path. That path leads to destruction. So how should you and I respond to this? I'll give you three things that occurred to me. You might have others. You talk to one another and, and share those. But the first response, I think, is we should fear unbelief. Okay? There are things that, as believers in Jesus, we should fear. I... I wonder if it's possible that our dislike of angry preaching 
hellfire and brimstone, so to speak, leads us to an opposite error, which is to not want to ever hear anything scary. Or to think that God's word has nothing scary to say to us, because it does. This is one. We should fear unbelief for ourselves and for others. Now, make sure you understand, by unbelief, I'm not talking about having questions. I'm not talking about struggling to believe some things. I'm not talking about having doubts. Okay, unbelief, biblically defined, is a refusal to believe, a refusal to trust Christ in spite of who he is and what he's done. So don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to seek good answers. But remember this. Sometimes questions are really just a smokescreen that we throw up because we, we just don't want to. We don't want to do something that God tells us to do. Or we don't like what his word says. We are easily deceived, the Bible says, by our own desires and by lies. So ask Jesus to guide you. Talk to people who actually love you and will speak the truth to you, tell you the truth. If you find within yourself a desire to walk away from Jesus, see that for what it is. It's deadly. Don't give in to that. Get the help you need. Second, th- second way to respond, we should never despair. We should never despair because we think somebody's beyond repentance. We should think about the fact that this warning is here. Okay? This was not written to tell people they're beyond repentance. This was written to call people to repentance. Don't, don't go that way. Draw near, draw near, draw near. Come near because of Jesus. So we are never to give up and to slide into despair thinking that somebody we know is beyond repentance. We probably all know somebody who at one time professed faith in Jesus but now no longer does. Is that terrible? Yes. Is it Should we despair that it's a hopeless situation? Absolutely not. The Bible is full of accounts of people who did terrible things, walked away from God, and God brought them back. So David, Jonah, the apostle Peter, the prodigal son... Even this scary passage is meant to draw people back, not to tell them they're beyond hope. So it is not our job to decide if someone can or cannot still repent. Our job is to pray. Our job is to speak the truth in love. And our job is to keep believing that nothing is too difficult for God. And third, we should pray. We should speak. We should live We should give as if getting the good news to people is critical, because it is. You know, we don't do this annual Operation Christmas Child packing party and make these outrageous goals. Yeah, let's pack 4,000 shoeboxes. Let's raise $36,000 for shipping. 
Let's support missionaries throughout the world. Let's help one another learn how we can better share the good news in our own community. We don't do these kinds of things because we got nothing better to do. Why do we do these things? Because it's absolutely critical that people hear who Jesus is and have an invitation to respond to the Spirit of grace. Jesus said, I, Him, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let us live as if he actually meant what he said. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for loving us so much that you would warn us not to walk away, not to treat you, not to treat your son as irrelevant, unimportant. Thank you for calling us to draw near to you. You are gracious. You are also holy and absolutely just. And if we will not trust Jesus as your only, your only provision for our sin, that's a suicidal choice, and you are telling us so. Father, uh, in encourage us to draw near. Encourage us to handle our questions, our doubts in healthy ways. Help us pray for those who are walking away. Help us pray for those who have not heard. Help us give, help us live as if people really need to know Jesus. We ask in his name, amen.